You're now listening to Dirty Feet, a brand new podcast on No More Radio. Bonjour, oui, vous êtes sur les ondes des pieds sales, aka Dirty Feet podcast on No More Radio. I'm Alison Burns. I'm JD Papillon. Oh, I'm Jen Don. The donor. donor. I'm the donor. This is Joanie on No More Radio. Stay tuned for dance, circus, burlesque, tango, movement, salsa, whatever it is, we're going to move you. You hadn't any right I really shouldn't have let you kiss me And although it was wrong I never was strong So as long as you've begun it And you know We have a really great show for you today on Dirty Feet. We're going to be speaking with Jose Navis of company Flack a little later on. And I just cannot wait. Before we get there, let's talk a little bit about what's up last week. Uh, JD, you've seen a couple shows. I went to see the Festival Mondial de Cirque de Demain at La Terre. Uh, which, for people who don't know, it's a sort of competition that they host every year in France uh, where they have this open invitation to young circus artists to present an act. And there's about 200 applicants every year. And from that, they bring it down to 12 people who are selected. And for this edition, they were presenting people who have participated this year in, in past years. And... Uh, It was interesting. It was very French, as in like from France, a sense of humor, sense of aesthetic. And in, in Montreal, we do have a very strong circus scene. And I was not that impressed with uh, most of the acts I've seen. There was one performer uh, using the Diabolo for juggling who was absolutely fantastic. He was really breathtaking. But the others were just meh. And it felt, I don't know, I talked with some other people who absolutely love the show. So, you know, if you're really into circus, it's worth seeing. But if you're a fan of Le Cédois de la Main or Cirque du Soleil or, you know, Cirque Loise, it's a very different, it's much more a by-the-numbers circus show where it will be act after act. There's not much of a connection between the different acts and it didn't feel like the show held itself that well together. Uh, so basically, that's how I felt about Festival Mondial de Cirque de Demain. You also saw an Agora show? I went to see Harold Réaume, Fluid. This one I'm writing a critique, uh, which should be up by now. It was very beautiful. I felt that there wasn't as much bring the piece up uh, as, let's say, with Karine Le Doyen and other artists from Quebec the week before. Yes, and I posted uh, a little link to that review on our Facebook page. Oh my goodness, speaking of our Facebook page, do you like us on Facebook yet? A couple of weeks ago, we breached 100 likes. We're really excited about that. And we'd love to uh, to have you like us if you haven't already liked us. If you listen to our podcast and you enjoy it, show us you love it. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet. And uh, yeah, so let's get started. I may cry now. 
my lips just ache to have you take the kiss that's waiting for you. You. So we're speaking with Jose Navas today, who is the artistic producer and founder of Company Flack. He has studios here in uh, in downtown Montreal, and he's been very busy with a lot of different works, and we're focusing today on his new solo project that's going to be presented at Agora this week, opening February 27th, 2013, in case you're listening to this way into the future. A few more notes on, on Jose Navis. Uh, the style of his work has been explained as, as sort of contemporary ballet, or uh, you've used the words abstract dance uh, group pieces. And it's also been suggested that you are a worthy successor of Cunningham. And for those of you who don't know, to give that, that statement a bit of weight, uh, Merce Cunningham is a, an icon in contemporary dance. He really created a movement and a whole new way of creating work and, uh, and kind of shook things up way back when. And uh, I would like to turn the mic over now to uh, to Jose Navas to kind of let us know uh, where you came from, what your training is, mm-hmm. and uh, and where you're going. Yes, well, hi, thanks for the invitation. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here, and uh, especially talking about dance in radio, I love that. That's always a challenge. Um, but uh, my my journey started in Venezuela. I come from Caracas. I was I was uh, trained there in Cunningham Technique and it was actually back then in the 70s, early 80s uh, in Caracas was the only school actually was teaching Cunningham Technique in South America. South America was mostly Limon and Graham because we're more dramatic and, and Cunningham was so American in a way because it was so abstract and it was about lines and body in this space but I, I was I was lucky enough that uh, my first contact with dance ever was actually that school and um, it gave me it gave me a very nice idea to start with about the work that it takes to to work technique and to choreograph and to dance and then uh, later on in the school uh, I was invited to think of the future and the director of the school told me you know you have enough talent to imagine a little more than this school and then he proposes a wild thing you know you should go study with Merce Cunningham in New York and um, I come from a working class family so it wasn't a choice or an option uh, for for my family nor for me to say I'm moving to New York so that was already a big step and uh, I was studying literature at that at that moment at the university and uh, one of my dreams was to become a writer so dance was sort of an accident in my life and um, I finally decided to sell everything, to sell all my books, to sell all my furniture, everything I had, and I put $200 together. And uh, some kind people helped me to buy a ticket to go to New York. And I went to the Cunningham studio, and I auditioned for the school. 
so I got into the school, uh, intermediate, and then I was in New York with $200, and then I had to find my way through it. I didn't speak English back then, so I had to clean apartments, and I was working in bars at night, cleaning the bars until 6 in the morning, and then I was taking classes from 10 on. But that was a wonderful school for me because I had to really dive into the, the craft of performing, dancing, and learning, learning English on the spot, and I, I was lucky enough to, to go to an audition for the first time in New York. A friend from the Cunningham studio told me Lucinda Childs had a, an audition. And Lucinda uh, is a sort of minimalist, postmodern queen <laughs> in dance. And uh, I wanted to see what, a, what an audition looked like. And it was fun. I went there and it was I, like films, you know, people with numbers and a lot of people and so and so. And I, I, I wanted to train myself to audition. And uh, I was I was surprised to see that I actually was uh, selected. Out of all these people, just just two dancers were asked to stay. Um, so I started my professional career with Lucinda, and then I danced with other choreographers as well in New York. And in 1991, I came to Montreal, and uh, this is where actually I started to choreograph in Montreal. In New York, I was, I was very much training as a dancer, and I wanted to gain experience as a dancer. But my dream was always to become a soloist and to do solo work. So in 1991, when I was here in Montreal, I, I choreographed my first solo that it was presented at Tangente. And it was Dina Davida, actually, who came to the studio. I, I invited her, I didn't know her, and I told her, look, I'm working on something. Would you come and see what I'm doing? And she offered me a show. And uh, I said yes, and I didn't have anything. I had just three minutes of choreography. So I was pushed to sort of find a solution. And uh, I always feel that that was my my understanding of this business, that you have to think on the spot, you have to surrender to what comes, and you have to negotiate with the present moment and continue creating. Uh, and since that invitation of Dina, I've always been creating solo work, and uh, yeah, and then many years later, here I am. <laughs> Coming from South America, training in New York, at what uh, made you create a base here in Montreal? As your studios and your company is based here, yes. you're, you're pretty rooted at this point. Yes, it was actually uh, life itself. I was living with uh, Bill Douglas, who's a, a Canadian uh, choreographer. And we met and, and got together in New York. Um, and we were partners, uh, lovers. And I was working as well for him. I was dancing for him. And uh, in 1990, uh, William got uh, diagnosed with HIV, but advanced AIDS. And in the 80s, um, we didn't know much about HIV, and the treatments were very harsh. So at that point for William, late 80s, it was very difficult for us to imagine his situation in the States. He was a Canadian, so we moved to Canada. He was started to teach at UCAM. Uh, I was teaching some technique at UCAM, and he died a few years later. Uh, I decided to stay in Montreal because around the, the illness of Bill, I, the dance community was so wonderful here. And I, I made very good friends, and the support was so fantastic that when he died, I really felt that uh, this was uh, a place where I felt home, and I started to have uh, roots. But also the memory of uh, having someone you love dying in, in a city that city becomes special to you. And uh, I think that event made uh, Montreal 
very deep rooted in me. So I decided to to start my company here, and also consciously decided to represent this country, Canada, and to represent what we are about here in Quebec. And um, and it, it is wonderful to be able. When people ask me, "Do you represent Venezuela when you travel around the world?" I always say, "I'm a Canadian choreographer." Because it's here actually that I had the opportunity. It's here that I had the support and the trust. Um, and I think a couple of weeks after being here, I was called a Quebecois choreographer, and that's very touching when you're an immigrant. So, um, yeah, that's why I'm here. When you described your transition into choreography in 1991, you said what you really wanted to do was create solo work, yes, as opposed to what I really wanted to do was choreograph. Yes, and and are those things? Those are very separate for you. And they're they're quite different because I uh, to me this is a very personal way to see it. But I think the the, f- the solo format is very much a dialogue between the observer and and the performer, and my dialogue with the space is my relationship with the observer and the space. When you work with a group of people, you have the space in between them, and that's where I find choreography comes when you start to manipulate the space in between two bodies and that negative space within the space of the theater and the space with the observer and so. So it's, it's, it's like architecture in a way. Solo work, I find very much, is, is like a, a monologue in theater. It's a, like, like a soliloque. It's very much about the spirit. It's very much about the presence. It's very much about the content and, and very much about this dialogue the dialogue between the observer and the performer. In choreography, and, and, and the work I do in choreography is, is way more abstract and movement-oriented, which in the solo work is more theatrical, more personal, uh, sometimes more performance art than dance. But I like, I like to be able to master both. I love choreography. I love the formality of choreography. I love uh, the, the school of thinking of Merce Cunningham and Balanchine but I also love uh, watching a performer for what he or she is to see the person and one thing that I'm fascinated the most is just to see a mature dancer my project is to see can I choreograph a body growing older so because I started in my early 20s I want to see, is it possible to choreograph a body that keeps changing and keeps growing old, uh, joints that keeps going drier, but also a mind that changes and a life experience that keeps growing. So my my goal is to say, well, this is the in- instrument I have. It's going to grow old. It's going to decay. And how can I continue choreographing solo work and allow that body to keep uh, sounding, you know, which the choreographic with group, you work with young bodies, you work with muscles that are in their prime, and that has a different color and a, and a different spirituality to it. So, I, I at times, and now I'm, I'm sort of choreographing more ballet, so sometimes it's a little bit schizophrenic because it's, it's, it's really different when you choreograph Giselle than when you choreograph a solo work for yourself. Um, but I like I like that spectrum. And when I came to dance, honestly, when I when I decided to become a dancer, I signed for the whole thing. I signed for the understanding of the whole thing. I love I love the challenge of choreographing a group, but I love the challenge also that at eight o'clock when the curtain goes up and it's just me and three hundred people in front, 
you have to you have to have a craft you have to have techniques you have to have tools to be able to hold those people for an hour or an hour and a half when you presented diptych at uh, place des arts last november for the danse danse season it was a group show for the majority of the evening but you started it with a short self solo was that to demonstrate the contrast between the two your two ideas oh possibly less important than that <laughs> it was it was the the that show was always presented in europe uh, as on its own and um, on its own the group piece separate the group piece okay. just the group piece and when i received the invitation to do it here in montreal um it was our first time and possibly the last time we danced on mesonneuf and i wanted to choreograph a specific solo for that event in Montreal. I wanted to talk to the audience. And uh, basically, I'm, I'm sort of leaving the postmodern style that I've been doing for a long time and going into something more classical. And I think Diptych has been really the, the turning point. And because I was presented here in Montreal, I wanted just to offer something special for the show here. The tricky thing is that the producers who saw it in Montreal, they're buying the show with the solo now, so it seems that I have to do the solo again. But I, I like that idea of being free to choreograph something that was going to be seen just here. Um, and I wanted to talk to people and said to them, look, this might not be your cup of tea, but I'm interested in movement. And at this point in my life, I'm 48, and I'm interested in making this piece. And I wanted to tell them, do, do not look for a story in it. Do not look for a meaning, because there is no meaning. It's just movement and space. And I wanted to have that moment, just to say that to people. And I think it was a little bit my own desire. And I don't know if he add anything to the show, but um, it meant a lot to me to do it here. Can you expand a bit on the description of your your evolution from the more, did you say, contemporary into yes. classical? Yes. Um, as I said, I started with Merz, and then in New York, I, I was very much dancing with postmodern choreographers. Uh, well, the, the, the main one was Lucinda Schaus, but uh, Stephen Petronius and Randy Warshaw, um, Donna Uchisono, and then William Douglas as well. And that was sort of more towards guided towards the 60s, you know, contact improvisation, release technique, a more logic way of using the body. And that was fantastic. It was a wonderful way to understand also how do I dance. And I kept doing ballet and Cunningham aside. Um, but when I arrived here, I, uh, there is something in me that is very fascinated by ballet. And I received this contract at Ballet British Columbia for three years to be the resident choreographer in Vancouver. So I'm finishing my third year with them. And working uh, on points has, has been extremely exciting and different. Um, and then now, recently, I received another invitation to create a piece for the National Ballet of Canada. And that excites me very much. So I want to open the door and see what, what is there for me and uh, how my work can uh, contribute uh, to, to the ballet movement here in Canada. I think there is something interesting with the postmodern background, the technique that we have in modern dance and ballet. And we have seen that in Europe uh, with many, many companies. And I think here in Canada we have a lot of talent to do that, that cross uh, breeding of techniques. And um, I hope I'm adding something to that process that uh, 
Marie Schwinar started already and Crystal Pite and others. Uh, I think there is there is much to discover still in ballet. I think possibly there is less to discover for me in, in modern dance, uh, possibly because my age, possibly because I've been there already, possibly because I've been doing it for a long time. And ballet is a challenge, it's a world that I don't know, it's a world that I don't belong to, so it's going to be hard to get in. Uh, and that is exciting because it becomes a new challenge. Is this also a, an evolution that's happening with your own company, FLAC, in your own work? In a way, yes. I think the dancers that I'm hiring now are, are more technical than before. And uh, I don't know yet what the next group piece is going to be for the company. But uh, I have the feeling, very possibly, that I, I will remain within that realm of technique, simple movement, abstract movement, etc. When you're talking about uh, the difference for you between creating solo work and group work, um, there, there seems to be an emphasis on the individual and the individual's personality when doing solo work and bodies in space and the relationships between bodies in group work. Do you still see the dancers in group work as individuals or do you see them more as just part of a collective that is moving mm -hmm. together? Yeah, that's a good question because... Uh, It's true that when you work with what you can call pure movement or abstract movement, it's very, it's very tempting to look at bodies as instruments and nothing else. And um, I find, and this is something actually that is not that I realize, but Merce Cunningham even said it many years ago, that, that it's something uh, difficult to talk about abstract movement because if it's done by a human being, it's not abstract anymore because a human being has a mind and it has a past and think of the future. And we have images constantly moving inside us. So when a person does a movement, it stops being abstract because it's a person with an age, a gender, etc. And uh, I do agree with that because when I work with my company, for example, and Diptych is a good example, the second half of Diptych, uh, it was uh, an structured improvisation. So when you, when you utilize instruments and you can ask them to improvise, they, they stop being instruments. They are individuals, they are citizens, they are men and women, and they are people with a mind. And I find that interesting because even if you write something extremely abstract with a group of five people, you will always see humans. You will always see humans. From the moment your eye meets the eye of a dancer, from the moment your body recognizes a movement in the other, when you have empathy for the movement of others, that's, that's uh, already a human connection. I was in Japan last year and I saw something quite e extraordinary there where they had these robots that move like humans. And they actually are very smooth in the movement. And there's something human about it. But still, when you look at it, even though it's almost perfect and they had a beautiful body that resembles very much a human body, you still feel a machine. You still feel that it's something imitating life. With a dancer, the beautiful thing is that you can ask a dancer to do the most angular movement, and you still see a person, you still see a human. And that's the beauty as well of solo work, because with solo work, I have many, work, many pieces that are just movement, but I'm aware that because it's, a, it's me, a, a man at, in his 40s dancing, that rings differently. And uh, 
part of me when I write, I see people as bodies. But when the, the, the choreography is written, I think you don't have a choice. You have to look at people. You have people in front of you. And do you ever delve into your dancer's psyche? Do you ask them about their lives? Do you use anything about themselves as, you know, mm. other than dancers, just people who happen to be dancers? Do you ever use that information as source for mm. writing choreography? Or do you more go into it as seeing them as bodies? And yes, bodies which are human and which have, yeah. you know, personality, a soul and everything. But just first and foremost about bodies in, yes. in the way you will approach the creative process? Yes. Well, I think possibly it goes in many different ways. And sometimes I, I am inspired by what we talk about or what I know of the person or sometimes what I imagine about the person. Many, many times I imagine things that is not true about them, but I choreograph qualities of movement or, or things. But there are other times that I... I do enjoy um, the challenge of working with bodies and not to see men and women, but just to see bodies. And that, uh, with Ballet BC, I have tried something that I really enjoy, which is you don't have that, that sort of thing if men lift women. You just have people. And then if you happen to be lifting another man, is two men lifting each other or two women lifting each other. And to me, that, I honestly didn't, didn't think about gender. I just wanted to use people as, as people, as people bones and muscles and fluid and uh, it turned out to be a mix of, of, of men with men women with women and so and the comment was so funny like people were seeing all this gay thing and I'm seeing people I'm seeing what happens if you actually use people as what we are we we come together and we build societies and we work together to be able to survive and I think on the stage when you when you dance with someone else there's something very simple when someone jumps towards you and you have to catch them uh, you are, it's very animalistic what happens when you dance so in the process it goes one way or the other but I think at the end of the day uh, you always be influenced by the person uh, and I say that because sometimes dancers can be tall and have high legs and I, I'm not inspired and I may see someone with very little technique and a difficult body and I'm super inspired so I think, I think the attention goes to the person yes do you ever take into consideration the possible audience perception of which, what you create in your creation? Because as you said yourself, you know, like the audience might see something that for you had no place there. Yes. Gender yes. in the case of what you did with Ballet BC. Yeah. Uh, do you ask yourself those questions or are you more at this moment, moment in your career in a place where you will create whatever you feel like and, mm -hmm. you know, audience will see what they want anyway. Yes. Um, I, I like to think about the audience. I like to think about the observer. And it's been possibly seven years around that I, I honestly being, I made that an aspect of the process that is important and I explain why. When I create a piece, I always have um, uh, sessions in the studio where I show the piece to a group of people that are not dancers. Uh, many times they come from McGill and it's people who study many different things. And I invite them to come to see the piece, and, and I ask them to give me a feedback. So basically, after I show the piece, people stay, and I just write. I don't defend what I'm doing, I don't answer. I just ask them to tell me. So people tell me, it's boring, it's too long, I didn't get it, it's, I don't know, I thought it was this or that. And I just take notes. And then I do, I work on the piece, then I do another, a second one. 
and then I do a third one. And I try to mix the groups and change the groups. Uh, it's fun when you don't have dancers and choreographers because I always like the idea of what if someone, you know, who works in a in an office sees this. Does it really say something? Because many times in the studio you work so hard in one moment and you can spend three months finding that little moment. But maybe that moment is extremely boring and interesting and doesn't say anything to anyone, just to you. The fact that it took three months to make it is not enough for me to leave it in the piece. So I cut easily. and uh, But I also listen to that. And many times in the feedback, people might react to something and I realize, well, that's what I want to say. I want people to be uncomfortable about that, so I leave it. But I, I, I know now, I'm responsible. I know now. I think it's, it doesn't take me by surprise that a nudity or masturbation thing, scene or this or that, people might react to it. I knew it. I had a feedback and I had that information. But, um, but also I, I find that it's, there is a minimum of, minimum of a respect for those who actually come to the theater and pay a ticket to come see you. Those people decided to eat dinner a little earlier and spend $35 or whatever the ticket costs to come see you. I have a responsibility with those 300 people. What I have to say, if it's interesting just for me to say, because I have to say it, I do it in the studio. Or I invite you to come see what I'm doing, but I, I won't ask you to pay for it. And um, I, I think some choreographers will find this completely pedantic to think of the audience. But uh, I think it's show business, and I think we depend on the observer as well. Do you have the same relationship with your solo work in terms of cutting things easily and um, paying attention to giving the audience a proper show? Very much so. Yeah. And uh, miniature in the beginning was something like nine solos, and I cut it to seven. And Personae, in the beginning, I had close to 12 little solos, and I cut it down to six. And uh, through the same process of uh, feedback and, and groups coming, it becomes clear the pieces that are extra. And it becomes clear that moment that you have a false ending, uh, which is something in dance I wish we could be talking so much about it. Because in dance we do that so much, the false endings that you, at some point you feel, wow, if it ended here, it would have been perfect. Uh, sometimes, as choreographers, we need to hear that. Sometimes we don't know about it. And it's, it's, it's important when someone tells you, you know what, you have a piece there. If you end the piece there, that's a piece. Mm -hmm. So yes, in solo work, especially in solo work, you have to do that, that type of process. You can get lost in, in, in what you're doing. I'm glad you brought up Miniatures, which is actually the show that we, <laughs> we said We're we would talk about. about. Yeah. <laughs> we forgot about it. Um, I have here, it says, it's a self-portrait in the form of an Impressionist's mosaic. Yes. Can you explain that to yeah, me? Yeah, Miniatures are, are small paintings, right? That you have to look with a loop. And uh, I like the idea of short stories, of miniatures, of, of you know, um, glimpses. Of something I love in literature, I love short stories. I think it takes a, a lot of craft and a good writer to write a good short story. And choreography is a little bit the same. A solo needs to have a beginning, middle, and end. And yet, when you go to the second solo, you should you should be able to invite people to accept a new beginning again, a new middle, a new end, and so on and so on. There is something about solo that I, I find 
it goes beyond choreography, and it's because that you have to. I think you have to choreograph the mind, and uh, is that connection with the mind and the body and the observer, and I, I find that interesting. At, at times, sometimes more than choreography, because it requires a little more craft <laughs> and, uh, and more. Uh, you really have to marry it to the discipline, because everything you eat, you read, you consume, will will find its way to miniature. So in miniature, this the small snippets of uh, of my life, I wanted to marry that with music. So why did I did six small pieces? Because there were six pieces of music that were hunting me, Judy Garland, Maria Callas, Bach, uh, Bellini. And um, I just said, well, what if I just do a show as if I'm in my studio and I change in front of the audience, I drink a glass of wine and uh, I speak in between the pieces and uh, I make it very informal and at the same time extremely choreographed in a way. Um, and that's a format that I really liked, and I kept for personae as well. Uh, the fact that I dance on that, that, that I change on stage, the fact that you see me changing between pieces, that there is no dressing room, that you see the dressing room in a way, I find that extremely fun and dangerous. You can lose an audience, or you can you can really bring them into your world. Yeah. You were talking about how, especially solo form for you, is very much a discussion with the audience. Yeah. Um, in, in the best of all possible yes. worlds, what would the audience be replying back to you yes. when you're presenting your solos? Yes. So the, the best dialogue I find in shows is when you feel that people are listening, but especially when, when you feel that people are actually almost like talking to you, meaning that they are, they are interested. Of course, that's my job, to keep them interested. But it's like talking to someone. When you talk to someone and that person is not looking into your eyes, that person is, you know, looking back. At some point, you feel like that person is not listening to me. When you're dancing, it's the same. When you're performing, it's the same. You sense that. Even even when you don't see their faces, there are theaters that the audience is too far back and you don't see the faces. But you could tell when people are listening or not. So when people are listening, it's really nice. There's a very delicate balance, you know. I Sometimes I was explaining this to a dancer. It's, it's almost like holding a coin in your finger, you know. It's a it's perfect balance. The coin is, is going to fall at some point because gravity. And a show is like that. From the moment you start, if you have that dialogue going on, it's like balancing a coin. And you have to balance it for an hour. Boop. And then after the last solo, you let go. So that dialogue is that, is that, is that attention. And uh, I al always make the parallel as well. It's like making love to someone. At some point, if you're having fun and the other person is looking at the ceiling, it's pretty sad, isn't it? <laughs> That's when you perform and that happens, it's the same feeling. At the same time, when people are with you, then you're talking. Then there is a, an exchange. And I think this a solo show is is done thanks to the audience, not just the soloist. Yeah. And do you feel? Do you ever feel that you could overwhelm your audience? I guess you can overwhelm them. Uh, I guess I'm too shy to overwhelm them. I haven't done anything that I feel wow. I guess people are going to be overwhelmed. I think the audience possibly is overwhelmed for them because the amount of things I create but not because the show itself or a show itself. I think the overwhelm feeling might come because they see me doing solo work and then there's a group work, then it's a ballet piece, and you know, then people might think, wow, 
is doing too much. But uh, the solos itself, I find it very, I think they're fairly simple, yeah. You first presented miniatures in 2008 at Agora. Um, it's quite a while yes. to continue to do the, the work. Have you been touring it since? Yes, we yeah. have done it in Europe quite a bit. And then after Agora, we have many shows as well. In Europe and in Montreal, we're back. You said a lot of it came from the inspiration from the music. Uh, have these songs just bored you to death at this point? <laughs> no, you know what? It's funny, and this is the good thing, because a, a show can bore you to death. And uh, what is fabulous is that it still it resonates in me, and I still I still enjoy the show so much. That's I think the 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 fun part of using music that moves you. I think it would never it, it will never feel tired because of that. And also, I'm, my body's changing. So even though it's the same music, my body's completely different. So my my relationship with each solo is is new in a way yeah you make me think a bit of uh, of margie gillis continuing to dance solos yes. while into her intro i'm not saying you're old by any I, means but you keep referring she's to my hero and she's my friend as well she's mm -hmm. a very very good friend but margie oh margie's a huge inspiration i i the first time i saw margie was in ottawa i was living in new york and i came here i was performing with someone and I went to Ottawa, and she was performing in the Canada Dance Festival. I don't know how old I was, but I I saw Margie, and I was in awe. I was in awe. I couldn't believe what I saw, because oh, that's dancing. It's not about tricks. It's about per performance. And uh, years later, when when Bill died, Margie was one of those people who came very close to me. We became very good friends, and. Uh, Margie inspires me so much, and I always say Margie is, is possibly the best soloist that Canada, Canada has given to the level of Isadora Duncan. And I think it's someone that many times I wish we should um, celebrate more. Uh, but Margie Gillis is definitely uh, a hero for all of us, yes. It's funny that you would say that. We when I had an interview with her, she the one thing I really remember she said off air was, we need to celebrate more. I just think we need, yes, to celebrate her. <laughs> <laughs> I think she meant just everything. Yeah, yes, I understand. It, it's just yeah. beautiful that you would say yeah. we need to celebrate her yeah. when she's so much a fan of celebration. Yes. I was going to ask, who was your inspiration? And then, mm. uh, and then we, we landed there. Do you have other inspirations you could cite as far as this yeah. strong soloist that you have such a clear idea of? Yes. The, the miniature, the, the main person that sort of initiate this idea uh, is, is the memory of, of watching Risa Steinberg. Risa Steinberg is a, a, a soloist from New York. Uh, right now she teaches just at Juilliard. But she had a very active career as a soloist, and I saw her in Venezuela when I was in dance school. And um, I think I was in my first year of dance school, so I knew very little about dance. And she came to Venezuela to do a solo show, and she was dancing pieces by Isadora Duncan and Anna Sokolov and Jose Limon and Martha Graham. So sort of pioneers of modern dance. And it was so fantastic. It's so so amazing because it was... I never thought that something that I would consider back then old-fashioned would have sort of touched me so much. And it was this very small lady who was dancing on a stage 
and and it was so magic and i remember i remember clearly after the show i felt i won i won't be a happy person if i don't achieve to do that if i don't achieve to to be a soloist i i thought it was so almost like a monk type of life you know but you, your life is all for that and uh i've been doing this for yeah dancing for 30 years and i I, I own that discipline to her for to that moment when you said I want to be that I want to marry to that I want to marry to that discipline I want to sacrifice whatever it takes to do that and I actually did I sacrificed my country my family my language uh but it's so beautiful when I I I'm in service to the audience and I'm in service to people who come to see the show and and she was in service to me when I saw her so she's a main inspiration but Uh, I have many inspirations in literature and people and and but I think for miniature which is the show we're talking about today Chris Steinberg is definitely the the fire be- behind it yeah Does literature still affect your your creative process? It does. I I still read a lot and I'm married to someone that reads a lot as well and that works actually with words um the way influences is structure I I enjoy a well-written book and I enjoy a well-written first chapter. I enjoy a good ending. I enjoy a good division in a novel, novel. And I think that it has it has always been in my brain when I choreograph. The fact that I started literature before dance also. I think always the way I choreograph is almost as if I'm writing words. And um I like to talk about writing movement. I like to talk about cal- calligraphing movement. And I think all that possibly is a frustrated desire of becoming a, a writer. But I, I love I love what a book can do. Uh and I love that beginning when you open a book, anything can happen. In a show it's the same before the curtain goes up. I mean, it can be the worst show you've ever seen in your life or it can be something that's going to change your life. And I love that moment. And uh I think books Patty Smith for example when I read uh, Just Kids a solo that made it to Persona I came after reading that book I read that book and I got into our New York in the 60s and Robert Mapplethorpe and herself and and then I found a a, a song by uh, Patty Smith and loved it and I made a solo on it and so I and it, that's one example but many pieces have come from something I have read that leads to something else I'm always curious when we have the opportunity to speak with a touring artist and uh, apparently you've been to over 40 countries with your work. <laughs> yes. Um can you speak to any um any surprises along the way or impressions on either their interpretation of your work or their receival of 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 yes. your art? Audiences are different and I mean that possibly is cliche to to say but it's very true. Uh, people are uh, react differently to dance one thing that i that i appreciate is that uh, when you tour you have to start from zero when you tour you don't have friends in the audience you don't have people who have references about you you really have to start from zero so it's a good proof for a show if the show works it should work in japan it should work in in germany it should work in montreal one thing about touring is also the you really get to practice dance for what it is for the discipline the training the the traveling is a big part of it the the jet lag the few hours of sleep etc etc but yet 
when it's 8 o'clock and the curtain goes up, you have a job to do. And it doesn't matter if you were traveling for 12 hours. The show has to happen. And then the next day you take a train and then you're in another place and then the show has to happen again. Happen again. And that, to me, is, is, is oh, such a great opportunity to really grab dance by the horns and say, voila, <laughs> bring it. And then you have to really utilize everything that you have learned and, and, and especially being humble. And then every time you just start from zero. Uh, recently, audience members got to see your work presented not on stage but on screen with Ova. Was this the first time you ever made a dance for film? It wasn't the first time, and it was the second time with Philippe Bailoc. Okay, he was the director of this film, mm -hmm. and 15 years before Ora, we we worked on a film Lodela, with also also a national film board production. And uh, in between those two films, I did other other dance films. But with Philippe has been the most uh, sort of real films mm -hmm. um, because the format is real film and also because the technology in both cases was technology that he didn't know or no one knew. When we did Lo de La, it was the first time those very tiny cameras existed and they were attached to the dancer's body. So there was not a cameraman. It was actually your limbs who were filming the film. And then for Aura, it was the camera that it wasn't used before, which is an infrared camera that um, we had to actually film the whole thing in the States because the camera cannot leave the United States unless it goes to Iraq or other places. And it's a camera you use actually to find people underground and to kill them, which is horrible, isn't it? So what is beautiful is that Philippe took that technology that was used in a horrific way to kill people and to chase people like rat, rats to actually create a dance film. And so we used this. It was really fun because the film doesn't have lights. There's no light sources at all in the room. The only light source is the heat of the bodies. And it's gorgeous. When, when they gave different colors to different values of heat, uh, each, each body was, was like luminous. And uh, what you can create with that, and then when you have a floor that is a mirror, it creates an infinitum uh, reproduction of that heat. I want to mention as well, just visually, it's also a 3D camera, so yes. it's not like a it's not a flat thermal exactly. image. It's yes. very and round. that I don't know much about film, but that it was technically another layer to it. The fact that you had two cameras that have to sync in one, well, it was super interesting. Uh, it was new to us. And uh, I have to say it was a really, really informative experience because working with Philippe and film people, they are very, very lit. They are not so much interested about the rond de jambe or the lines or what you're doing. They're really interested to see how you move from A to B, how fast you move from A to B, and are you medium, high, or low, period. And, and that's such a concrete way to see <laughs> movement, you know? And it was really fun to be in that context and in that process that I honestly learned so much and I learned to synthesize and so on and so on. Yeah. There are more film collaborations planned for the future? Yes, there's another film with Philippe uh, in the future and there is um, a possibility of doing an abecedaire, um, an alphabet, so to create a solo for a very brief solo for each letter and to make that a, a dance film. So we are, in, we are right now sort of brainstorming around it, yeah. As you were mentioning, 
with Flip, there was a new te- technological element mm-hmm. every time so far in your collaborations. Where else would you like to take this? Is there any other new technology that you'd be interested in approaching or any new technique for cinema that you haven't explored that would be interesting for you to discover? And that's a great question because it's something that I ask myself after Aura, seeing that Philippe is very much interested to see what happens if we meet every 15 years and we bring something new that we don't know how to deal with and create something. And I like that idea because the my life in the studio is very low-tech. It's just me and a ghetto blaster. When I work with someone like Philippe, suddenly the world opens up to me and the universe changes, you know, because I'm in contact with another information. and But also he gives me the information already digested. And that's so it's really fascinating because you, you can imagine things. And there, I... I would love someday, I would love someday to eliminate gravity and see how can you choreograph uh, bodies in a space without gravity. Now, I don't know how possible that would be, <laughs> but it would be wonderful to see what, what is the momentum of a body when you, when you don't have gravity, and how would you choreograph that? That's actually taking me to another question I wanted to ask, which is... Um, When are you going to space? What? Uh, (laughs) I could ask that, but I won't. Um, I was actually going to ask about if you had a wish list of either people that you really would love to work with someday, of elements that you'd like to bring in on stage, of spaces you'd like to perform in, like just a wish list of if you could have all everything you wanted to create right now, what would those things be? Oh, my God. (laughs) That's That's a big question. That's a scary thought. Um, Okay. Yeah, but I wish list can be so long. Huh? I can, I, yes, I can wish a lot. But honestly, 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 I think my wish list will contain nothing. I find that when I don't have anything, I create my best work. When, if you tell me you don't have budget for custom, you, don't have, you have three weeks. You have to do something. I find that I create so well. When, when, I'm, when I'm pushed to find a solution, <laughs> when I'm pushed to work with simplicity. There have been projects where I, I had a, was luxurious to have things. People would say, what do you need? And you will have it. And I find you can get lost a little bit in it. You can get lost in, in the gadgets. You can get lost in, if I have so much money for costumes, well, I guess we have to make a complex costume. But sometimes a piece doesn't ask for a costume. Maybe you just need a shirt and pants. And maybe you just need an empty space. My wish list, you know, honestly will be, can I choreograph outside of the stage? Either either site-specific things or, or film. But uh, I think there's life beyond the format of the black box uh, for dance. I don't know what. I don't, I don't know how, because site-specific is not so hard either. I mean, you can do it. And, well, but I, I think there is something else in dance beyond the, the black box. What would that be for you? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm insisting on this. I think more like, is a spiritual thing. I, okay. think dance, I think dance, because you solicit the, the nervous system, mm-hmm. because you, use, you have to use that connection mind and body, body and mind all the time. There is something that we don't invest- investigate, which is the mind of a dancer, the mind of, of a 
creator, but especially for a dancer, someone who uses the body as an instrument. I find that, and, and this is a little possibly a more complex, complex conversation, but I find, why do I say there is life beyond the black box? It's because I think when you dance, you go beyond the physical. When you really connect, when you really dance, when you really have that dialogue with the audience, you go beyond the gravity and the two arms and the two legs and how you look and how old you are and what the theater is. There's something spiritual. There's something that transcends the physical. And I think there is something in dance that we can explore more, which is that service to others. When we say dance is important for society, sometimes we, 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 it's, it's short what we say. It's important because it's important to express yourself, yes. But I think also it's important because it changes how we vibrate. It changes how we perceive physicality. It changes how we feel. I think I, you, can, you can put someone to the top of their nerves if you cut your, yourself in front of them. If you caress a puppy in front of someone, you may make them smile. You can change the space when you are on a stage. And I think dancing is definitely more of a spiritual experience than a physical experience. And I think we still see it as a physical thing. That's why seeing Margie dancing or myself dancing or Kasuono when he was dancing, we always see, wow, that's extraordinary to see an old person dancing. But I think with time we're going to understand that dancing is not a physical thing. I honestly think it's a mental thing. And I honestly think it's your, mostly your mind that connects to others, to the observer. It's not your body. And do you feel that this experience can be lived through seeing a dance on screen also? I think the experience is different. And I think seeing a live performance, will, to me, will always have a different uh, texture to it. Possibly richer for me. Maybe I'm a different generation. And maybe I'm the de- generation that transitioned to internet and other things. But I still find seeing someone in the same space as I am and breathing the same air, I find that beautiful. In a film, I, I can cough and I can leave the room, but the object will never know that. The object is not there. But a live performance, if I stand up and I leave the room, I know you are observing me. I know. I become then the performance of the house if I do that. I love that. And it's also a very delicate line because in live performance, if you do something outrageous, I can throw a brick to your face. In a film, you can say something outrageous and it stays there. But in live performance, you also are taking a big responsibility. If you are going to do something daring, you have to be responsible if someone, someone slaps your face or if someone tells you something. That's live performance, and that's what I love about it. It can go very wrong, and it can go very, very, very well. Do you still have fears when you create? Yes, always. And I still get nervous before being on stage, and I I still fear, of course. I fear not to make the right connections. I fear... I think the, the, the main fear is that I lose the fascination for this. I hate when it becomes work where the more the more success you have the more projects you have and at some point life dance can become work and i don't like that i i fear to lose that to lose the passion or the love for it and i i'm also in peace that if it happens it happens i think that it might be part of the process too but um 
when I create, I fear that, yeah. And do you see yourself creating until you're 90, like Merce Cunningham? Yes, I see myself... Look, I don't know if this is possible. This is a tough career eh? and a tough uh, discipline. I don't know if it's going to be possible. I hope it will be possible. And I want to choreograph and perform until I'm 100. I hope people come to see because you can't believe that the dinosaur is dancing and then you come see it. And I want to be that. I want to be that type of dinosaur on stage. You say, wow, that man has been doing that for 60 years. And I'm seeing the prime of his understanding of that. But I don't know if it's possible. I don't know if my mind will be okay until then. The touring and the traveling and stuff takes a toll on your mind. So sometimes I wonder if I'll be sane in 30 years. But if I am, I hope I can be still doing this. You've talked to us a bit about your transition from going to first modern and postmodern in New York mm. and then to a more classical and ballet uh, type of movement. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you see yourself going anywhere in any other direction after that? Is there something that you feel you haven't explored as a, as a language or as an approach, a philosophy of movement? Yeah, you know, it's... Um, I mean, and, and I open as well, as I said before, that I may stop everything soon. But uh, I am always very interested about theater, and I'm always always being very interested about literature. So if there are other ways to bring dance a little farther, I would like to write about dance and to write about the metier of a soloist. I think there is some knowledge that possibly be interesting and useful for a young artist that wants to become a soloist and I think those things is nice when you have documents so someone can read something like I read many things in the past and makes you want to be but also I would like to experiment in theater I, I had experience with Teat de Katsu and Washington Mawad some years ago and that was fun they asked me to direct a, a theater piece three actors and that was it was weird crazy stressing but I learned so much it really was like someone saying Okay, you're going to do brain surgery. Go. And you go, oh, how do I cut? Where do I cut? It was like that. I would like to dive again. I think I, I was very surprised the first time. And the second time, I would like to do it for real and uh, and say, okay, let's do a mise-en-scene and work with text and stuff. So that that's always there. Who, who knows? You've mentioned Kazuono also. Yes. Would you ever see yourself trying to discover a bit more about Bhutto as, as a form of art? You know, I'm always curious and I always would like to do that and I've been very cautious not to go too much in that direction because that, because I'm a male soloist and I find that Kasuono was so exquisite and delicate and masterful doing that, that I find I shouldn't, I shouldn't even try to go close to those waters because, I don't know it's like trying to be Mozart, I don't know, <laughs> Mozart did what he did. You try to do what you do, but honestly, oh, if 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 I if I can start again, this I I would spend some years learning Bhutto. I think it's such a beautiful discipline, a school of thought, and I think it's such a poetic way of presenting the body. Um, I don't know if you've seen uh, Sankaijuku, and it's it's a Bhutto troupe, and all the men are. Uh, white skin and it's such a simple idea and 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 Bhutto 
present it to the world. But now if, if you present the body all white with rice powder, it's a Bhutto body, right? So I wouldn't like to imitate Bhutto. And I think it takes many years of training as well. But I read a lot about Kasuono. I have many books about him, and I have many DVDs about him. And he's someone, that's the soloist that I try to emulate. And Kasuono danced until he was 90-something. And uh, I saw Kasuono when he was 75 years old on stage, and he was he honestly was like a, di- a white, skinny dinosaur. And it was the most beautiful thing. He had the whole theater in tears, and it was the most gorgeous thing because it was so weird it was so delicate, it was so human it was poetry and uh, him like Pina Bausch were wow, like Merz people who created things that were so specific that you don't find it anywhere else and uh, and I think that's the beauty of doing what we do I haven't found that but hopefully in many years from now, possibly I will find that color in my work that will be that thing that shines and makes you feel something. Well, thank you, Jose Navas, so much for joining us today. It's been a really exquisite thank interview. You. And especially thank you because I know how busy you are. So thank you <laughs> for taking the time. Hmm? <laughs> I have my bodyguards with me. Yeah. I'm <laughs> all in the corner there quietly. So you're busy uh, getting prepared to put up miniatures at Agora. You can catch the show at Agora on February 27th, 28th, and March 1st at 8 p.m. And then you're off to present Personne, which is the other solo you were discussing uh, mm-hmm. earlier. You're going to the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, mm-hmm. all over the place. And then you're coming back to Canada, although not to Montreal, for Villanelle and S, another mm-hmm. solo work, plus a group piece mm-hmm. with eight dancers. You're going to Kingston in April, Oakville, Toronto, and Vancouver with that yes. work. And we Flat. premiere uh, Giselle in Vancouver in April, April 25th my new version of Giselle with Ballet British Columbia. And I premiere the Rite of Spring with the Brussels Philharmonic in Belgium in May. And that's the last project. <laughs> and after that vacation. few busy months. Yes, and after that, a nice vacation. <laughs> so all of those dates can be found on uh, org. Yes. your company website. Great. Yes. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much huh? It was very fun. Thank you. Thank Great. You. Mama may scold me Cause she told me It was naughty but then Please do it again Dirty Feet is recorded every week at the Montreal Improv Theatre. Check them out at montrealimprov.com Dirty Feet is produced and hosted by Alison Burns, J.D. Papillon, Jen Doan, Joanie Farrand, and distributed by No More Radio. You can find more about our show at nomoradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet. And you can find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcast. Tune in next week for a whole new show. And hold me close in your I know tomorrow morning you will say 
Please.